Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Katie DeLuca. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps other chiropractors find out about chiropractic science and others as well. So if you like the show, please take in a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review from Dr. Paul Shanahan, who says, Thank you, Dr. Dean Smith, for running the Chiropractic Science Podcast. I enjoy listening to them and consider them an important part of chiropractic culture. It is exciting to listen to the findings of scientific chiropractic research and find that they confirm the neurological underpinnings of chiropractic. This has allowed me to communicate chiropractic to other healthcare professionals in a framework that is not encumbered by the language or analogies of the past. In my opinion, this is the most important thing for our profession. Well, thank you for that review, Dr. Shanahan, and I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Katie DeLuca. Katie DeLuca is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Chiropractic at Macquarie University. She is a chiropractor in clinical practice. However, her research focuses on the epidemiology and management of musculoskeletal conditions with expertise in the elderly. In 2016, she was awarded her PhD from the University of Newcastle School of Medicine and Public Health. Her thesis explored the experience of pain in women with arthritis and resulted in substantial contributions to the field of rheumatology, pain, and aging research. She has 25 peer-reviewed journal publications and more than 50 conference presentations, which includes several invited keynote presentations on back pain in the elderly. These have been at regional, national, and international conferences in gerontology, pain, public health, and chiropractic forums. She is on the editorial boards of Chiropractic and Manual Therapies and JMPT and peer reviews for another 13 journals. She has received several large competitive grants, most recently being awarded in excess of $400,000 in an industry-led grant from Australia Chiropractors Association to perform a longitudinal study on back pain in older Australians who present to a chiropractor for treatment of their low back pain. She has won many research prizes, including first prize at the World Federation of Chiropractic Biennial Conference in Washington, D.C. This was uh, D.C. 17, as it was otherwise called. She is actively on the board for the Chiropractic Australia Research Foundation and is the research chair for Sports Chiropractic Australia. She is one of only 13 Carl Fellows, 
a group she is privileged to be a part of. She hopes to be a leading chiropractic researcher on spinal pain in the elderly and is honored to be here today. So Dr. DeLuca, I'm really excited to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Dean. Thank you so much for having me. I have been um, an avid listener of this program for many years. Oh, thank you so much. Well, let's uh, get on with uh, the interview here, and I'd like to learn all the cool stuff you've been up to. Can you first tell us about how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor? Yeah, so um, so really I grew up as a, a very active kid in the country and I was very sports orientated, but I was really lucky enough never to have any injuries. So my exposure to chiropractic didn't really come till you know, later in the piece. So actually I always wanted to be a physiotherapist uh, working with athletes. And in my first degree, I studied exercise and sports science. As a part of this degree, I had to do some field work and I actually worked with um, Associate Professor Henry Pollard down in Cronulla. And this was my first experience of, of chiropractic. So I got to um, see him work as a sports chiropractor and I really enjoyed what he did and the way that he treated the athletes. So in my exercise and science degree, I had to do a biomechanics assignment and I asked him to read through my work for me and he said, this is really great. So by the end of a few years of working with Henry, I, I looked to go into my Master's of Chiropractic um, degree at Macquarie University. And, and fortunately, I was accepted into the program and I entered the program as a, a qualifying year. So I, I went um, one year as a qualifier and then straight into the Master's program. So I actually didn't have any um, you know exposure to chiropractic as a child, but I think that's given me a really good perspective now on, on the profession. Fantastic. Let's talk about uh, your practice of chiropractic as well, if we could, and then we'll get into the research a little bit more. So you went to school, you became a chiropractor, and tell us about your experiences since then as a chiropractor. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll get into the research after that. Yeah, so I, I graduated 10 years ago, and um, I, I really found a passion for, for what I was studying and, and what I was doing. And I think it was from that sports focus that I was able to apply it to. So I went into clinical practice. Um, I went in as an associate at a, a very large and a very busy sports chiropractic clinic in, in Parramatta. And I learned a lot from Lorenzo Campagna when I was there. And I was able to travel a lot with sporting teams and really apply my manual knowledge to, to athletes and then bring it back into practice. So I had five years in practice in Parramatta um, with the group there and then yeah I, I really had this desire to move home to the country and so yeah we packed up and moved back up to the country and at this point I, I took the opportunity to start my PhD but um, after you know about two years enrolled in my PhD program I again felt the need to go back into clinical practice so I uh, opened my own clinic I'm in a, a very small town of only around 7,000 people um, and there was just at that time one other chiropractor in town, and it's about 45 kilometres to the closest um, to the closest town near us. So yeah, I've had a really great experience now. I I own my own business. I have an associate who works for me, and it's a multidisciplinary practice in which we also have a massage therapist and have had a podiatrist in the past. So there's um, I, I love being in clinical practice where we live is predominantly older people. There's 34% of the population are over the age of 
65 and there's only around 52% of the population who are engaged in the workforce. So we're in a relatively low socio-demographic area, but I have um, a lovely position within the community of providing you know, important healthcare to these people. Um, we have a small community where I get to talk at the VIEW clubs and I sponsor some of the soccer teams and some of the netball teams. So, yeah, it's a really um, important place as a chiropractor that I have in the community as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. So can you tell us, um, <clears throat> sounded like you went, uh, you were in practice, you went to school, you uh, decided that you wanted to be in practice again and presumably did that, uh, I guess, through at least part of your schooling. And so now you're juggling both careers as uh, a practicing chiropractor and a researcher. Can we talk about the research a little bit? What, what was it that uh, got you interested in the research bug? Yeah, so initially it was, was working um, with, with Henry Pollard. So I got a really good experience back then and started writing and publishing. And initially I worked as a research assistant for actually the One Foundation. So I continued working in that and I really felt the need to establish my clinical skills for those first few years. Um, but I had this, you know, desire and I just really wanted to do my PhD. And I probably felt that when I made the move to the country, it was a good time to to engage myself in that. At that time, I was, you know, married and, and looking to start a family and thought, hey, this could be a good idea to, you know, enrol in a PhD at the same time. Um, yeah, so for the first few years of my PhD, I wasn't in clinical practice, and but I was having my children. And it was a really nice balance for me to have. So um, when I was in, um, in my studies, in our fifth year, we do a research project. So I had actually... At that time, um, I was engaged in an internationally collaborative randomised control um, randomised control trial on manual therapy for hip osteoarthritis. So I really uh, enjoyed doing that. And for the next couple of years, that's what I was writing and, and publishing was the results from that study. Um, so, yeah, it was just really a matter of time until I was going to do my PhD. And it's still something that I personally and professionally um, celebrate. It's a great achievement um, to have so I really encourage other people to do it but once I'd started my PhD I'd, I'd moved up to the country so then I went um, pretty much to a, a closer uh, tertiary um, centre so I went to the University of Newcastle and they had a lot of funding and they had a lot of large projects and I really embedded myself into the projects that they were established and what we were looking at doing so there was an opportunity to look at um, arthritis pain in older women. So after having um, started with a little bit of hip osteoarthritis and manual therapy there, I sort of moved into epidemiology of musculoskeletal conditions. Um, and so I was just moving around. Um, I had two scholarships also, which really helped me, um, you know, start my research career. So I, I wasn't dependent on clinical practice for those few years that I that I was out. Um, and, and eventually, uh, yeah, I came back because I still felt the need to be uh, a clinician researcher, I suppose. Okay, terrific. And I can tell you're a true academic because you said, oh, yeah, let's, let's go to school and have a family at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know what that's like. So, uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what's a typical day like uh, these days for you? 
Yeah, this is a this is a funny question. Um, there really, uh, this, particularly this year, there hasn't been a typical day for myself. So, uh, as you mentioned, this year I've had a a full time academic position at Macquarie University, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow there. So, I do have a flexible workplace. So, I actually live five hours from from Sydney, and so I actually fly into Sydney on a weekly or fortnightly basis to. Um, to attend uh, seminars or to lecture the students or to meet with faculty or, you know, some of my um, research students as well. So really my typical day could be getting up at 6am to to fly to Sydney or it could be having really three small children jumping all over me, wanting to read me a book. Um, Another day I could be waking up and heading off to clinical practice where I have a really busy day, you know, being being a chiropractor in our small community um, and I'm usually having, you know, online so Skype meetings with, again, my research students or um, colleagues at the faculty and things like that. So, yeah, I uh, at most days or most weeks, I'm sitting down and planning where I'm at and what I'm doing. So it's a really exciting. It's, it's quite a busy time, but it's been a great year this year. But, um, yeah, I can't say any day is, is typical at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like fun, though. So that's that's good. Yeah, it keeps things interesting and, um, yeah, it's it's lovely. I have a really good opportunity with my role at Macquarie now and I, I'm, I, I love it. It's actually my dream job. It's just a bit of a shame that we moved up to the countries a few years beforehand. So, <laughs> Dr. DeLuca, you've been published in a variety of excellent journals, including Best Practice and Research, Clinical Rheumatology, Pain Medicine, JMPT, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehab, and so many others. So I'd like to get into the research now a little bit and uh, figure out some of these other things that you've been up to during your career. So why don't we get started with um, this paper? It's entitled Three Subgroups of Pain Profiles Identified in 227 Women with Arthritis, a Latent Class Analysis. And this was published in Clinical Rheumatology. Can you guide us through, through this paper? Yeah, so this was um, probably the, the primary paper that's come out of my, my PhD and it's probably best to orientate the listener a little bit about why I did my PhD and the study that um, was, you know, the large part of my thesis. So what um, traditionally that really pain had been attributed to sort of like a peripheral and, and local tissue damage and really the mechanisms of arthritis pain was nociceptive in nature. So what um, the experience of pain and arthritis was really at that time being increasingly recognised as much more complex interaction between nociceptive and at the time neuropathic mechanisms. So when there is an acute painful activation of the nociceptive pathways, we know that these sort of... um cascades of inflammatory and, and hyperalgesic substance at the joint. But with arthritis and, and chronic pain, it seems that with this repeated and um, persistent ex- excitation, surrounding musculoskeletal structures and neuronal activity were being modified. So the thoughts at the time that I started my PhD that was arthritis wasn't just peripheral in nature, but there was actually central sensitization happening within the brain. And this was due to excitability in neurons and decreases in inhibition and really at the time ORSI, so the Osteoarthritis Research Society International, they really wanted to look at different mechanisms that could cause arthritis pain. So a lot of the research at the time had been done at a basic science level and um, 
but no population-based studies had been done in Australia. And I was actually given a really good opportunity with the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health to explore this multi-dimensional nature of, you know, pain. And the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health, it's a really large longitudinal health study and it's been going for more than 20 years. And there's around 58,000 women that have been followed for this time. And they've got four different um, cohorts of women in different um, years that are born, different aged cohorts. So for my PhD study, I was able to tap into an aged cohort born between uh, 1946 and and 1951. And what I did was a cross-sectional sub-study survey of these women. And I sent them a survey, a postal survey, and we looked at um, reliable and valid measures of health and pain and arthritis to sort of capture the experience. So with um, of my 700 women, we had 579 women return their survey, and this was around, um, I think it was about an 83% response rate. So really the first um, study of my PhD was looking at the prevalence of neuropathic-like pain in women with arthritis. So we really wanted to not to look at not just this nociceptive but this neuropathic kind of pain. And probably now it would be termed inflammatory pain, but at the time that I did my PhD, this is what we had um, you know, justified of what we're looking at. And with the first paper, um, we had a, like a quarter of the women with arthritis actually had neuropathic like pain. And this was screened with the pain detect, the pain detect tool. So we also found that women with a neuropathic pain had um, higher to catastrophizing and they had more severe pain and they had fatigue and depression than women with just sort of this nociceptive um, arthritis pain. So what that first did was um, it, it gave us information that neuropathic pain was quite common. And then what we wanted to do, and this is the um, the three subgroups of pain profiles paper, and we wanted to see if um, women were grouped together based upon their multidimensional experience of pain. And this is what we wanted to look at was the sensory and the affective and the cognitive aspect of pain. And this was um, as defined by Melzac. So, um, yeah, previous studies that we had looked at at the time um, grouped together, say, radiographic or strength or BMI, for example, and we just couldn't sort of see some sort of clinical pattern there. So we specifically wanted to look at pain, but outside the unidimensional, you know, intensity where that's what people often measure it for. So um, a colleague of mine um, at Macquarie University, Aaron Downey, and he's enrolled in a PhD at the George Institute, and he has amazing statistical analysis skills. And so he had had some experience with latent class analysis. And um, latent class analysis kind of identifies the minimal number of clinically meaningful clusters, but so the difference between the clusters is is maximised. So we were looking to identify groups that sort of stood alone, um, depended on these the variables that we had included into it. So we then did some logistic regression to determine like what was difference between the clusters in regards to their health and socio-demographic variables. So when we um, entered the the variables into the latent class analysis, what we identified was three clusters of women with arthritis. And these three clusters were very different in nature. So 
initially there was a, a unidimensional pain profile and, and we labelled them with that. And these women kind of had quite mild pain in nature and they really didn't have any further symptomatology. And this was about uh, two-fifths of the the population and then we also identified this moderate multi-dimensional pain profile and these were again about another 40 percent of women and they started to have moderate pain ratings um, and they also had some pain symptomatology and this is in regards to um, if they had sensory aspects to their pain or if they had some pain catastrophizing um, but only sort of around a 30 to 40 percent probability in that group and then there was this small group so 20% or about one-fifth of the women who clustered together and they were in this really severe multi-dimensional pain profile and the probability um, women in this group it was a higher probability that they had kind of horrible pain excruciating pain and these were measured by these um, you know, tools that we had used in the survey. They also had um, a 98% probability that they had neuropathic-like pain, as I mentioned, as screened by the pain detect, and that they would have um, affective and cognitive changes to their pain. So this, um, this was really the first time that something like this had been done where we looked at this multidimensional type of pain in arthritis. And then we looked at the differences between the two um, and three clusters and really being in a moderate or severe profile or cluster, it um, really had um, a severe impact on their quality of life and it had a higher risk of these women in these groups from suffering from depression compared to women in the multi or in the unidimensional pain group. So what was interesting for us was, um, you know, if we can identify these women based upon their experience of pain, maybe it would be interesting to stratify people dependent on their pain mechanisms. So whether they had these plain nociceptive and mild pain profiles or if they had these neuropathic pain profiles that had, you know, burning and numbness, they had sensitivities to pain, they were catastrophizing. And possibly, you know, this was a theory that if we actually targeted treatment towards the mechanisms of pain, this may be more beneficial in improving outcomes. Um, yeah, so that's sort of where we came to for this, how we got to to this study. Yeah, great. Thank you for uh, that explanation and the background and, and what you found in that paper. One of the things as I was reading through the discussion that I think was a really nice summary for clinicians, uh, you say it's important to be aware that subgroups of women with arthritis exist and have very different experiences of pain. So I'm sure you've had a lot of time to think about the implications of these. What what are the kinds of questions uh, or questionnaires? Now, you mentioned pain detect. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, so what are the kinds of questions or questionnaires that chiropractors could use in their practice to identify the kinds of subgroups that you might have found in your study? Yeah, so that the point that you made was really nice. Like it's important to be where that subgroups of women with arthritis exist and they have very different experiences of pain. And, and this came from some of my, you know, um, dissatisfactions in clinical practice where people present to us and they seem to all get a blanket kind of treatment, whether it's paracetamol or whatever it was. So th that was really important to me that we can't just treat, we have to go back to treating the person, uh, more person-centred care, particularly in regards to their experience of pain. So when we... Um, uh, 
created our survey, I suppose you'd say. We did a systematic review prior to that, which explored what measures had been used in epidemiological studies to look at pain. And so that systematic review then gave us some information on what were the most common ones and what ones you know, were more valid or reliable in older people and things like that. So in the PhD, we used 11 different outcome measures to capture what we felt was this multidimensional nature. Um, and it was primarily to steer away from pain as a, you know, this single um, intensity sort of, and that was it. Um, so where most of us would be very familiar with verbal and numerical and probably visual scales, they're very simple and they're minimally intrusive, but the disadvantage that we were finding is that they assume this unidimensional experience. So pain has so many qualities and questionnaires that I found really useful was um, or something that came up a lot in we've had a lot of analyses from the data from my PhD and pain catastrophizing constantly came up as significantly associated with arthritis pain and in studies of comorbidity and studies of neuropathic pain and studies of you know these different dimensions of pain um yeah, it's, I, I believe if you can look at pain catastrophizing. So we use the pain catastrophizing scale. It's only 13 items and it captures aspects of rumination and magnification and helplessness. So really catastrophization is when someone's letting their pain take over the majority of the aspects of their life. So they're quite um, fearful to do things and pain can often seem more worse than what it is and it's not allowing them to do activities that they want to do. So I think this tool is is really beneficial in that, um, especially in our severe multidimensional group, um, women had an 82% probability of, of pain catastrophizing. So I think if you use this tool in clinical practice, you will get a really good feel of, of how that person is dealing with their pain. So that would be one. And then uh, another tool that um, a questionnaire that we used that we just found was gave us very valuable information. So a little bit of bang for buck was the um, the SFMPQ. So the short form of the McGill pain questionnaire, um, but there now is a second version. And this has been modified from the first version. And this is that it actually has some items within the measure to identify neuropathic pain. And so with um, a lot of the analyses from our studies, we mainly use pain detect, and that's because it's a very um, clean and very um, clear-cut screening tool for pain detect. It, it looks a lot at the temporal aspects of pain and, and things like that, but um, it's primarily for screening. So I think in clinical practice, if you're able to use their SFMPQ, it actually provides some measurement on both neuropathic and non-neuropathic pain. So again, it includes items on burning and numbness and, and things like that and there's a scale of 0 to 10 so it's again really user friendly for the the average chiropractor I think yeah thanks for that I, I really appreciate that I haven't u- ever used the SFMPQ so uh, Number two, yeah, I'll, yeah I'll, I'll check that out and I'll check out that second version as well um, so what do you see as some of the key differences perhaps in in the care uh, let's say by chiropractors particularly uh, between the various subgroups that you've identified in in this study, how how might how might chiropractors, um, you know, decide to treat people differently, or what might they be thinking about, perhaps, as they subgroup these folks? 
Yeah, this is this is a great question, and it's it's um makes me feel like I need to do more work because we actually had data that was linked to uh, a scheme in Australia called the Medicare Benefits Schedule, and this is the um different types of care that they can receive that's um, provided by the government. So I've actually never really had time to get around to linking the data sets and performing the analyses to look at the the healthcare use in these women. So you're probably giving me some homework to to go away and work with, but I I think it would be really interesting. So um, all, all we really know that just from the analyses of um, a couple of different studies that in both women with neuropathic-like pain and also with the women with the severe multidimensional pain profile and also in women with this multi-site joint pain, they had just um, significantly higher numbers of prescribed medications. So we we don't really know the nature of the prescriptions, so whether they were, you know, used to control their pain or if they were possibly, say, um, prescriptions for blood pressure medications or possibly depression or something like that. But we really deduced that, you know, these, these women are having multiple prescriptions, um, possibly for a range of health conditions, and it highlights that they're probably in poorer health, whether physical or mental poorer health and it really highlights probably poor management in these patients so we had one little look at just the the uh, the cohort or the, the sample that I was able to use for my PhD and I, I vaguely remember that I think there was around 90 odd women who reported using chiropractic care which would um, I think would be about 15% of the sample so again it'd be really interesting to compare the health um, of the women who had chiropractic versus the women who you know, did not attend for chiropractic care, but I don't know now if I'd have the power to perform these sort of relevant analysis. So back to your question, probably in the regards to where this leads for treatment, I think going back to that sort of target or stratified treatment, possibly if we look at um, women with a in a mild profile, maybe these are the women where, you know, education and advice would be most beneficial for them. Um, you know, doing exercise and remaining physically active would be an appropriate form of, you know, management for these women where when we work down into these severe multidimensional pain profiles, maybe these are the women who, you know, need to be referred to um, some sort of cognitive behavioural therapy, whether they need to go to, you know, a chronic pain clinic. And we really need to start looking at some different forms of treatment for the neuropathic-like pain. So, yeah, I hope that answers that question in the different ways that the subgroups could utilize care. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, you know, all of us have uh, lots of unanswered questions, but that's the the draw to research. So <laughs> kudos yeah. for... Uh, uh, for this important study, and you know, it just the the fact that it raises a lot more questions to me is is indicative of it's an important thing to study. So, um, yeah, I think in research we often ask one question and walk away with ten more questions. So, oh, absolutely, absolutely. So let's get to some more of those questions that you've had. Um, and <clears throat> one of the studies uh, was just recently published in Australasian Journal of Aging, and this is uh, Qualitative Insights into the Experience of Pain in Older Australian Women with Arthritis. Was this from the same cohort uh, that we just talked about? Yeah, yeah, it actually was. So um, this is a neat little paper. So I basically have done a lot of secondary analyses of the data that was collected through my PhD, and I worked on this with my PhD super supervisors and well as um we had a qualitative expert come on from the University of Newcastle. So 
um, in, I think it was 2016, we were supervising some um, honours in nursing students and they wanted to start looking at these, um, the qualitative comments. So at the end of our survey, we provided the women with half a page to write an open-ended question on their arthritis pain. And this was asking them if they felt it was something that we had missed that they wanted to tell us about or if there was anything that they wanted to tell us about in regards to their arthritis pain or current health, you know, domestic situation, those kind of things. So we knew that we had this information um, that we had collected. So what we wanted to ask was, did the women who clustered together using the quantitative methods, so we were able to drive these profiles with data, were the qualitative comments that they provided, you know, similarly themed, okay? So from our analysis, we knew the groups of women had different experience of pain, but did these groups have qualitative comments that aligned with their cluster membership? So it was just something interesting that we were thinking about, well, what did these women, what did they actually say at the end of their survey and did it align to the, the quantitative analysis? So we, um, we got to explore these women's words. So again, it was a really good opportunity to use this data that we collected. So um, we actually found that the women's words were um, concordant with their cluster membership and the qualitative expert was able to derive some themes based around the comments that were provided by the women. So um, in the paper, it's quite a thorough um, description of each theme and, and how we came to the thematic analysis and how we came to the themes, you know, that we presented. But basically, women with the um, unidimensional profile, there was only really one theme that came out of that, and that was that they are able to manage their pain. So again, potentially through exercise, uh, maybe manual therapies. We just felt that these women were able to to get on with life. They had a pretty good quality of life. They had quite fulfilling lives. They talked about being able to manage their pain. But when we moved up into that second group, so the moderate multidimensional pain group, they had two themes that emerged. And these themes were, I live with pain every day and I rely on medication regularly. Um, so this you can see there's sort of a, a little bit of a change in the way that women were talking about their pain. So this is a daily thing. This is a, something they are constantly working on and that they actually have medications for this, um, for pain relief. And, and that's a bit of a worry. So most women in this group are probably um, on pain medication. So that was interesting. So they're able to live with their pain, but they're on medications. And then when we... Um, went to the other end of the spectrum to this severe multidimensional pain profile, they actually had three themes, or we actually had three themes that emerged. And the first one was themed multiple pain. And the second one was I suffer with pain. And the third one was I am unable and adjust. And this was um, these themes were generated completely independently. So that late, the qualitative expert was blinded to the, the themes that had been quantitative, quantitatively derived. So um, the multiple pain suggested that, you know, again, it's not just this peripheral joint con condition, but it's possibly more multi-site or it's more chronic in nature. It's maybe more fibromyalgic. They have pain in lots of places. And even the use of the word suffer 
So it's something that's really impacting on their quality of life and it is really quite detrimental to their health. And then that last theme that was, um, you know, um, described was I am unable and adjust. And so then we got the feeling that these women are actually either not active in a social group, they're not able to perform their activities of daily living, maybe they're unable to, um, yeah, just get out and be mobile. So this was really interesting for us because it really hit home and whilst the measures that we spoke about in the previous questions are really important from a scale perspective, it really comes back to listening to your patient. And it was really nice to be involved in a, a qualitative study where you have to listen to your patient's word. These people, um, these women with arthritis, are probably going to tell you everything you need to know just by asking them about their pain. And this may be just as beneficial to understand or direct treatment. Um, again, if they need to be referred to an orthopedic surgeon or a cognitive behavioural therapist, just by listening to these women's words. So whilst all this quantitative analysis is good, um, yeah, it was really nice to go through these women's words, what they'd been writing down, look at the themes that were generated by it and realise that their words are still the most important thing that comes out of the patients. Yeah, so so very important. Um, and going through the discussion on this paper, I, I found another uh, quote that I, I really wanted to uh, share with the audience, and that was, Working from a person-centered perspective using subjective language is a value to identify those people with moderate to severe pain experiences, and these people may benefit from management strategies that include medication review and compliance check and referral to allied health care and chronic pain clinics. And just uh, on a personal note, and I'm sure every healthcare provider, doesn't matter if it's a chiropractor or not, can certainly attest to the fact that people come in and they say, look, I, I'm on medication daily. I am in severe pain. Uh, and, you know, people may say it a little bit differently, but these themes definitely emerge day in and day out in practice. And it's just something that we deal with. And, and I, I, I personally in clinic uh, like to write down some of these quotes that people have that kind of clues me into how they describe uh, what they're feeling, and it just kind of gets me back to, you know, uh, I guess looking at each person as an individual. But these themes most definitely emerge, and it's nice to see uh, how these might relate to, for example, that, that previous study when we start, you know, quantifying uh, things as well and, and how our care then may impact the kind of words that they use to describe their pain experience as well as the quantify, quantifiable or more quantifiable, I guess, uh, uh, pain numbers and those sorts of things. Yeah, I agree. It was just actually a, a lovely experience to be you know, utilize the qualitative data that we have and, and be involved in this process because it was um, there's definitely a different um, methodology behind qualitative research. But for me, again, it just gave me that little bit more of evidence in practice where I um, listen to the people and I actually feel that when I'm listening to my people, in my, my patients in clinic, that I could relate to the themes that I'd just identified in research. So again, when you when you read a lot of the research or literature, it gives you so much more power as a clinician. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. So <clears throat> I'd like to get on to some of the uh, a couple of papers that relate uh, perhaps a little bit more specifically to 
to chiropractors and to, uh, to spine pain. So if we could do that, and then I definitely want to get your ideas as to what, uh, what evidence we have uh, within, within the field to the, the best evidence uh, for dealing with elderly and spine pain. But let's, uh, I think the best way to approach that is to talk about the next two papers. Um, the first one would be relationship between spinal pain and comorbidity. This was a cross-sectional analysis of 579 community-dwelling uh, older Australian women. So if you could guide us through uh, that paper, that'd be great. Yeah, so this was, um, a- again, just a bit of an opportunity. So I was actually attending the World Federation of Chiropractic Conference in Athens in that would have been, I suppose, 2014. And I was actually listening to Scott Holderman talk about the impact of spinal disorders on health and that more so that, you know, spine, spinal pain can carry a burden of disease that is more than just disability that's associated with pain. So at that time I had completed my data collection. I'd, you know, been exploring the data a little bit and, and I just thought to myself, like, I, I think I have that data. Like, I think I can answer that question for Scott. So, um, yeah, I knew that I'd asked about spinal pain and I knew that I'd asked about comorbid chronic conditions. So when um, I returned from Athens, I just emailed Scott and we had we started working together and, and looking through the information that I had and, and looking at answering some of these questions. And we wanted to test the hypothesis that spinal pain would be associated with comorbid disease. And we were able to do that and we found that individually cardiovascular disease and pulmonary disorders Uh, obesity and overweight and also mental disorders were significantly associated with spinal pain. Um, What hadn't been done and what we looked at was the number of comorbid conditions and we actually found that there was a significant incremental increase in the risk of spinal pain associated with increasing comorbidity counts. So with a higher number of comorbidities or comorbid conditions, there was actually an increase in the risk of spinal pain. So as a part of that paper, we suggested that possibly spinal pain is a contributor to um, like dysregulated physiological mechanisms. And like, for example, it would be or it may contribute to an increased allostatic load through spinal pain being additional physiological and psychological and behavioral mechanisms that have to you know, manage homeostasis within the body. So, of, of course, we just um, postulated that as a bit of a theory at the end of the paper, and, of course, more research is needed. So this, was a, this is a really neat, um, interesting study. Um, it is cross-sectional in nature, and we cannot, cannot state that spinal pain, you know, increased the risk of these conditions all the other way around, um, that, you know, these conditions were a risk factor for spinal pain. But um, it just gave us, uh, a little bit of preliminary information and, and touching the waters, um, feeling the waters in regards to spinal pain and health, um, that it does actually have a burden outside of just disability. So really, um, yeah, that's where this sort of paper came from and it gave us um, just some really great information on, you know, chiropractic can, if we can manage spinal pain well, that maybe we can improve the overall health of the person, you know, just outside of pain. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, just thinking about uh, this study and, and several other studies that have been 
published uh, recently as well, looking at these uh, multi, you know, comorbid issues that are uh, that our seniors are dealing with. It it seems, regardless of which way it goes, uh, they definitely come together. Uh, people, you know, I guess one way to look at it is as we get older, you know, we just, <laughs> I guess that is the definition of aging. Essentially, uh, <clears throat> everything uh, gets exposed to more uh, and more uh, time and, and time has a way of tearing mm-hmm. things down, it seems. And so interesting. And yeah, I don't know which way this association would go, but it seems that dealing with uh, some of these components, maybe on a one-by-one basis or kind of a shotgun approach. Who knows what, what's going to come out, but I think it's, a, it's exciting times. Um, I think of Dr. Whedon's uh, studies here in the United States looking at the Medicare population and how at least uh, it can reduce uh, some of the cost uh, when it comes with... Uh, uh, these comorbid conditions. I think that's pretty interesting as well. Uh, so, wh- yeah, what do you think, what What are the next studies on this? I'm just curious. Yeah, we, um, like, we have to probably look at more longitudinal studies to determine what's happening first and, and what happens second and if they have an impact on each other. Um, so it's, we, we potentially have some of this information within our show, within some of these really large data sets these days. Um, so, yeah, it's just a matter of accessing them and asking the correct questions. Um, the problem with some of those large data sets and without is when you're going back 20 years, they may not be asking the questions um, that are sort of um, relevant to the question these days. So just as an example, we had to ask the initial questions were about rheumatism where now we know it's osteoarthritis or something like that. So I think longitudinal studies can really sort of um, suss out that association a little bit better or the causation a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. What do you think are some of the most important ways that chiropractors can make a difference in the elderly population with spinal pain? Yeah, I think this is a really, um, a really great question and it's actually something I'm really passionate about. So um, recently, I've really been given some wonderful opportunities to talk about back pain in the elderly, both at you know the Australian conferences and also at at Parker um, seminars in Dallas. And I got to talk there for two hours on this complete topic. So I think um, what we need to start doing a little bit is looking outside of of just pain in older people. So um, there are some really great um, sort of cohort studies in the elderly these days. And from one study, which is the Bold study. Um, that even after 12 months, that 75% of older people still have persistent back pain. And so really like persistent pain and disability and this interference with activities, they're really problematic for the vast majority of, of older people with back pain. So um, we also know that in the elderly, it's much more likely that they will have moderate to severe episodes of spinal pain. And it's actually more incapacitating than it is in, in younger adults. So there's a few studies that have been done on the trajectories of pain in older people and actually in four of the six identified trajectories, um, these groups of older people had minimal improvements in pain at 12 months. So I think that a really important thing to think about when treating your older patients is, is the changes that we can provide or make to their actual functional ability and look at improvements in their activities of daily living. 
So uh, for older people, um, independence, and this includes being able to, you know, live within their home and um, being mobile in their community and mobility. So, you know, being able to walk, being able to walk to the shops, they're really important factors. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're costly factors. We The costs of housing people in nursing homes is, is really expensive and we're going to have more people that need to live in nursing homes. But um, these are really sort of um, important factors or they'll be important to older people or as we age. So they also, um, if we look at independence mobility, they have the ability to decrease healthcare costs associated with older people. So I think if through chiropractic care, if we're able to help our older patients, we need to look at these activities of daily living. So if we can, um, you know, allow them to be able to walk to the shops to buy their newspaper or to buy their food or if they're able to um, shower themselves is, is really important. So basic hygiene care, if we are able to give older people, you know, the strength in lifting a laundry basket to the clothesline, if they're able to wash their own clothes, if they're able to clean the kitchen. So these basic activities or instrumental activities of daily living, they're really important activities, you know, for these older people. So with um, with older people with back pain, they're actually twice as likely to experience a fall and they, you know, increase, they face increased difficulties in lifting and bathing and, and the climbing stairs within their own home is, a, is another really important thing. So I think this is where chiropractors really can make the most differences. Um, if we can give them advice and education that their pain is probably recurrent in nature and this is that, you know, your your pain is going to flare up over time. It's probably due to activities that aggravate, you know, some degenerative spine changes in the spine and we need to assure them and, and educate them on, on really keeping active. And, yes, it's our role to you know, working towards improving pain. But I think most ex- importantly, if we can express to the older people that we want to work with them to maintain independence, these older people, and, and even my experience from clinical practices, they really appreciate the honesty and they engage and commit to managing their health and their spine pain because they know that it's more than just decreasing pain. It's actually, you know, improving their quality of life. Yay. I, I really like that discussion about function I think it's absolutely critical. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where in years of practice, it seems that you kind of get around to, by necessity, asking about their function more and more. And it seems that that's just a critical piece to the the puzzle is, uh, you know, that oftentimes people are just going to have the pain. And certainly we can help to manage that. Uh, yep. In some cases, it'll go away, other cases not. But focusing on the function, I think, seems really critical, especially with all of the comorbid conditions that we just talked about that come along with aging. So fantastic. Yeah, I re- go ahead. Yeah, I, I really think like, um, yeah, kind of coming back to what they expect from treatment and how we talk to them about treatment. So, you know, we're up against degenerative conditions in the spine and, and whether they are painful or correlated to probably not pain is not necessarily correlated to what we see on imaging but you know we we can't cure and we're not going to fix any form of degenerative condition or osteoarthritis so we we can't claim that and what we have to do is stay within our scope and that's with working with function I think with the elderly is really important 
Excellent. Well, let's um, get into our last paper here, which is uh, characteristics of chiropractors who manage people age 65 and older, uh, a nationally representative sample of 1,903 chiropractors. That's that's a lot. So um, this was published, uh, or I'm not sure, is it published um, yet, Katie, in Australia, Australasian Journal of Aging? Yeah, no, it's, I, I believe um, we've made some minor revisions and sent it back, so I think it's under final review. I was really hoping that I could say yes, but I, I, we don't have that final email yet. Gotcha. Well, yeah. uh, why don't you share whatever, whatever you can, whatever you feel comfortable with uh, about this paper with us, and then we'll have uh, some discussion about this. Yeah, so this is um, just a, a, again, it's a, a little paper, and um, so there's a, a large, there's a practice-based research network that's established in Australia, and it's called ACORN, and um, we were given the opportunity to look at some secondary analysis of, of uh, chiropractors that frequently treat older people. So um, interestingly is that you know, older people are actually the largest group of people seeking complementary and alternative medicine. And um, whilst rather old data, we know that older people are actually overrepresented in chiropractic practice. So what we don't have a lot of information on is is how we as chiropractors treat these older people that are commonly, you know, coming into our clinical practice. So, And we also don't really know whether the treatment that we provide is effective or not. So, so this paper um, gave us important information that the majority of, of chiropractors actually do treat do often treat older people, so 74% did. Um, some of the information that we gained from this is that treating an older person is associated with the management of uh, normally complex conditions, and this is both axial and referred neck pain, um, axial and referred thoracic pain, and also axial and referred low back pain. And it was also um, treating an older person was associated with treating lower limb musculoskeletal disorders. So this was inf interesting information in the demographics of the type of person that we as chiropractors get to treat. And then we also looked at the way that chiropractors treat older people. And again, it was uh, most commonly in the form of low force techniques, such as pelvic blocker, blocking and instrument adjusting and flexion distraction. And that treatment provided by chiropractors that frequently treated older people um, was associated with extremity manipulation and soft tissue therapy and also heat or cryotherapy. So these comparisons were made for people or for chiropractors who, who rarely treated older people. So it gives that picture of, of what treatment is provided. Um, they're really necessary first steps to understand clinical practice and it definitely guides future research. So both in regards to... Um, sort of future workforce surveys on people who treat older people, on chiropractors who treat older people, but also it will guide, um, you know, randomised control trials because we could see the most common techniques that are used by chiropractors and, and apply, you know, clinical practice into research a little bit better. So also of interest from findings from studies such as these is it can actually guide um, like future development courses, so whether it's uh, webinars or seminars, and this can provide, you know, really good information on aspects of treating the older person, and um, this is important considering the number, so three quarters of um, this sample that regularly treat uh, older people in clinical practice. 
Okay, great. Thanks for going through that. I want to just ask a couple of, I guess, broader questions now that we've gone through uh, some of your papers. Um, first is, uh, what can the what can the chiropractor do to bring themselves up to speed on elderly people with spine pain? And, and how chiropractic might affect the, the, that population. Is there, are there certain key articles that you think chiropractors should read? I mean, other than yours, of course. Uh, are there any other papers that um, would suggest there are systematic reviews that would summarize succinctly uh, the current evidence? Yeah, so Dean, there's like actually very little evidence and like there's really some massive gaps in the literature in regards to the safety and the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness of chiropractic care in the elderly. So in 2016, we performed a systematic review of the literature on this and we were actually only able to identify four randomised controlled trials that looked at, um, you know, the effectiveness of manual therapies on pain and disability in uh, chronic low back pain in older people. So this was really... Um, you know, quite a, not alarming for me, but it was really highlighted these these gaps that we do have. So, with the systematic review, in summary, positively, what we found was that most groups um, compared against another interventions, and in each of the interventions that were applied, um, the results showed that over time, regardless of what manual therapy was used, it was effective for decreasing pain and/or disability. However, there was no statistically significant differences between the interventions. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a take-home message was it, it didn't really matter what you did, but it, it did help uh, for chronic low back pain in older people. But some of the studies that were included, they looked at either, you know, for example, thrust versus no thrust. So even in some of the people that received a non-thrust intervention, they improved. So the studies that were included were, you know, they were of good methodological quality and they tended to have a low risk of bias but it's just you know there's too few of studies to really make any sort of implications for the effectiveness of manual therapy so what I would lead the um, the, the listeners um, to towards is Michelle Meyer's work and so since we published that review uh, Michelle's um, been publishing a lot of work on this area and I believe that she did a PhD so she's actually um, done some RCTs and she was able to show that for neck pain in individuals aged 65 years and older, spinal manipulation um, with home exercises resulted in greater pain reduction after 12 weeks of treatment. Um, so if you're interested in geriatrics, she's also done some work on um, the satisfaction and also the safety of chiropractic care in the elderly. So um, Paul Doherty, he's done some great work in this area and he did... Um, uh, a randomised control trial of um, uh, for seniors. I believe they were veterans receiving spinal manipulation. In his study, there was a spinal manipulation therapy versus sham. And in regards to adverse events, he provided a really comprehensive and explicit report of events. And really, um, there was no difference between the intervention and the sham groups. So sort of concurring with Michelle's work with the safety of chiropractic for older people, it seems to be that um, there are a few, but they're non-serious musculoskeletal adverse events. And really, if you familiar, familiarise yourself with this literature, it's about, you know, talking with your patients and probably um, 
you know, anticipating that they may have some muscle soreness um, and discuss this with the patients and, and really that's, that's some great information taken away from those studies. So, yeah, really, uh, um, Michelle, and there's, there's a lot of really good work done on spinal stenosis um, by um, Carlo Mandolia, and he's just come down to Australia and provided his spinal mobility work and also Mike Schneider. So there's, they've done amazing work in spinal stenosis, um, so I'd familiarise the listener with their work as well. I think you've had Carl, Carlo on the program before. Um, yeah, but there's still a lot of work really to be done in the area of the older patient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for uh, mentioning all those other uh, authors and their important contributions to uh, the elderly and spine pain and how chiropractic might uh, uh, influence uh, those patients. Um, where do you see your research going in the next five to 10 years, Katie? It seems like, wow, there's so much to do. Yeah, yeah. There's um, just lots of opportunity. I think if, you know, people really become passionate about certain areas of, of, of gerontology or, you know, chiropractic research for the elderly, there, there is a lot of opportunity. But yeah, really excitingly, um, just this month, I was awarded a, a very large competitive um, industry-led grant by the Australian Chiropractors Association. And as you mentioned, this is to perform a 12-month longitudinal study on back pain in the elderly. And so just as a background to that grant, um, there was an original back complaints in the Elders International Consortium, and this was established in countries such as Brazil and the Netherlands and Norway. And they um, wanted to compare the course and they wanted to look at prognostic factors of low back pain across different countries, but primarily in um, primary care. So um, then there was some European chiropractic researchers and they were then awarded funding to replicate aspects of the base study. However, they wanted to do it in a, a cohort of chiropractic patients. So, yeah, we applied for some, um, some funding this year and we've been very lucky to get it. This will allow us to join this international consortium and it include chiropractic researchers such as um, Sydney Rubenstein and Jan Hartvigsen and, and Evan Axon and, and they're actually running this base chiropractic studies in um, Netherlands and in Sweden. So I actually think this will take up quite a large part of my, my next few years, but it's just a really exciting um, thing to see that there's some momentum in regards to chiropractic research in the elderly and there's going to be such valuable data collected and there's going to be you know, opportunities to pull you know, this data and look at international comparisons and it's really going to look at the course and the satisfaction and you know the costs associated with low back pain in, in specifically chiropractic patients. So um, yeah, that's that's a really exciting development for me in this area. And then um, yeah, some of my other opportunities is really looking at um, the kind of the risk factors and the prognosis, um, particularly in spinal pain. So I'm actually leading a Delphi study to determine some consensus agreements on definitions of spinal osteoarthritis. So we know that um, you know whether it's diagnostic or classification criteria and hip osteoarthritis and knee osteoarthritis and even hand osteoarthritis it receives a lot of the um a lot of the um sort of uh research backing in regards to osteoarthritis but really there's actually very little done in spinal osteoarthritis and this is a really important area of research that i'm going to be associated with and this is in regards uh in collaboration with a with a mentor of mine manuela ferreira 
So that's a really, um, you know, we really need to drive a better understanding and some definitions. And I think these definitions are really important to guide, to guide clinical practice and research for spinal osteoarthritis because we all age. We just have to determine, you know, the course and markers and risk factors for this, this aging process. Um, and again, I have a really wonderful opportunity to work again with Scott Holderman and we're just um, finalising a paper based around spinal pain and cognition. So looking at cognitive impairment in older US adults. And again, this is a really under-researched area. Um, I think we're actually the first ones to be looking at some population-based data on this. And there is just so much potential and it's so relevant to chiropractors. So yeah, hopefully if I get some time and some more money, I'd, I'd like to do you know, just test some hypothesis whether chiropractic or spinal manipulation has an effect on cognitive function and the implications of that area of research, again, in, in either preventing, or, um, you know, cognitive decline or maintaining function is so wide-reaching because there's really a grave burden associated with cognitive decline. You know, we're an ageing population and um, it's, again, a part of ageing. So, yeah, there's there's many interesting opportunities in this space in gerontology and um, there's also, when we come back to this, the power of the notion of positive ageing, that really we want to have older people ageing well, ageing healthily, and really determining the role of chiropractors in, in doing that. So we have two really interesting trends, which is an ageing population and also, um, you know, older people who use chiropractic. So we have an opportunity over the next few years to really place ourselves as leaders of healthcare um, providers in musculoskeletal pain in the elderly. Great. Thank you for going through all of that. And it sounds like an exciting uh, series of studies that are going to come out of this research over the next five to 10 years. And congratulations on that recent research award. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Dean. It's definitely, um, yeah, by far the largest you know, grant that I've ever received. And I'm, I'm really thankful to the ACA for the opportunity to, to do this study. Um, they're, you know, placing this in my hands. I think it's to be placed within this broader sort of global consortium on back pain in the elderly is a really great opportunity for Australia. I'm going to be really fortunate enough to work with, you know, chiropractic researchers who are experienced in these cohort studies. So, yeah, I will, I will really learn a lot and hopefully we'll, you know, be able to gather some really interesting data. Absolutely. Dr. DeLuca, a, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who may wish to become scientists? Yeah, this is such a great question. And it's, um, yeah, this little bit of opportunity to either inspire or, you know, encourage. So, yeah, it's been such a large part of me as a, you know, a, a scientist to, um, you know, do this for many years and, and really evolve as a researcher. But I, I, the biggest thing is that I think it still makes me a better clinician to be reading the literature. You um, become more worldly, become more, more wordy. You're able to provide you know, your patients with really good evidence-based care, whether it's in what you can do or, or what you can't do or what just you don't know what's going to happen and that's okay too. So I think, um, yeah, if anyone has a really burning desire, get in touch with, you know, a senior academic close by to you or people that are leaders in the field in the area that interests you, whether it's, you know, 
neurology or pediatrics or gerontology or whatever it may be because I think if you're once you're leading the literature you are um, being critical and being critical is not necessarily being negative it's actually trying to determine the, the quality of work that can be done so once you start learning how to read literature then you want to be writing literature and I think it's our um, it's really quite an honor or it's a responsibility to to write down the the, the research and you know, PubMed has millions of citations of healthcare research around the world, and it's actually our way of writing our chiropractic story and enables other people in different fields to actually learn about, you know, what we're doing and you know the improved quality of the research. Um, there's just so many fields in chiropractic that that need more researchers, and so yeah, it's been really. Um, I've been really fortunate. I've been able to, you know, I'm a a mother who's also doing this and it's a great balance for me. I, I get to be home with my kids or I get to be writing research papers and, and, and traveling the world. So there's it's a great career. I think you can do both. Um, I definitely think it complements clinical practice and I would really in, encourage anyone to go into higher degree research at any time. There's, there's so much opportunity now for, you know, cross-country collaborations and co-tutorial agreements between countries and you know, there's hopefully an increase in the pool of funding for, for research studies. So I think as an early career researcher, I have some amazing mentors um, above me, like um, Jan Hartvigsen and, and Greg Korchuk. And I'm, uh, you know, a fellow of this Chiropractic Academy for Research and Leadership. Yeah, I'll just finish there, Dean. Yep. Okay. Um, so thanks uh, so much for that um, uh, advice to chiropractors who may wish to become researchers. It's such an important thing. I think we need to just bolster our uh, evidence base. And uh, that could be just the average practitioner doing a case study and familiarizing themselves with the, uh, the literature, or there's so many ways to do it. Um, but those are, those are really good uh, pieces of advice. Uh, Katie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you, Dean, again, so much for having me. I hope people find there's a little bit of value in, in learning about the research that I do. And I, I think you do an amazing job in sort of a, a large part of research these days is is disseminating uh, not only the research, but the message that researchers are trying to provide to people. So I think you provide it in a format where it's it's easy for uh, chiropractors to, to listen to the researchers. So I know that I quite often either in running or on my bike and I can't wait for your next podcast to come out. So yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this interview with Dr. Katie DeLuca. I hope you learned a lot during our conversation. We look forward to sharing more great interviews with you coming up soon.